Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast with your host, Detective Chris Anderson and criminal defense attorney, Fatima Silva. Guys, it is episode 14 and we have been having a great time talking true crime with you all and a little bourbon too. Absolutely. The bourbon part is getting more fun for me because I'm learning more. There was a listener who wrote to us and said, I am totally enjoying the podcast, but I'm no longer allowed to drink with you. I was like, uh-oh, I don't know what's going on there. Maybe maybe having a little too much throughout the podcast on a work night. That'll definitely be the next morning if, if you're drinking along with us. So hopefully you all just drink the beverage that is going to be the best for you so that you can get a good night's rest in and get up the next day. <laughs> so per usual, Chris, are you are you drinking anything tonight? What do you have then? Tonight, I have pulled out the same bourbon that I had for our guest Carlos last week. I enjoyed Carlos's conversation so much that I recycled mm-hmm. his bourbon. So tonight, I am drinking Eagle Rare. That's a very the smooth, delicious, very sweet bourbon that I have enjoyed for a while now. It's hard that to find. That was nice. He said he was going to try to get you some. Oh, yeah. That yeah, was pretty bad. cool. Tonight I'm just doing, I went back to my classic, what I'm comfortable with, four roses. Cheers. Cheers. It's a good one. Never fails me. And it doesn't hurt me too much because I'm just sipping it light. There you go. But Chris, we have some interesting stuff to talk about tonight, which is going to make this bourbon go down even smoother because we're going to take our time and digest all of this. I want to talk a headline case with you tonight. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. All right. Well... Later, we do have a guest, and we're going to introduce you to her a little later. She is going to bring some insight not only to this case, but also a few tips on what to look for when you're dating someone, right? A lot of people nowadays, they're dating people they met online, people who are strangers they meet from social media, and it's that's great. I have a lot of friends who have met online, end up married, have wonderful, beautiful marriages. There's a lot of perks to it and there's a lot of downfalls, right? You meet somebody online, they can claim to be anyone they want. Uh, They can assume a new identity, really. Mm -hmm. And until you meet family and friends, you have no way of verifying anything. That's the scary part. I do feel like I never did the online dating thing. I feel like I met my husband right before I was going to probably get into that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He said the same. He was like, I was just about to get on those apps. Um, (laughs) And you know, I tell myself that would have probably been fun because I'm a curious person and I love, bless you, I love getting to know people and people who are different and you meet them from other places. It's not just friends of friends where you know everything about one another. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, it sounds like a lot of fun. And then friends of mine would start to tell me stories. And a lot of them were horror stories. <laughs> just how somebody would present as one thing and then later they'd find out when they met the family or they met friends, this person was totally different. And get that's the probably the best way to meet people nowadays. Nobody's really hanging out on the clubs all night when you reach a certain age or the bar scene's not really where you want to pick up either. That that can be just as dangerous, especially for women. Yeah. I just always thought it would be fascinating if I just had a little taste of that. I know you obviously never did it. You've been married for Forever. 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 I was born and then I You've got been married, married longer than you were single. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. That's wild. You have been with your wife longer than you haven't been with her. Yep. So basically, you need her. 
<laughs> you want you her, know, but you, but, you her. know, I, I you reach that her. age. Look, I, I, we're at the point now. I, I call her the cloud. I do need her. I, I call her the cloud. I, I do because I can't remember shit anymore. No, I know. You know, I know. it, it, it gets to the point time. where you know. Look, I'm like, I left my keys somewhere, and she's like, look. Go upstairs, look on the dresser. You put your keys on there last night when you came in the house half drunk after being on Crime and Cookie Juice podcast, and you threw them on your counter. So they up there. Just go up there and look for them. You know, it's little stuff like that that I just don't remember doing. And you know, you like, get to that phase, couples where they've been together longer than you know they were actually single, and it's like it's like a song. It's like right. just a beautiful melody where. You just always know where to step in, where to give space, when it's that time. And you just work together without even having to say anything, probably. You're right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Now look, I, I know when she when she needs her time, I know. I, I, that's why I built out my little basement. I have my little backyard. I, I know, okay, you need some space? Go to your yeah. area. I'm going to go to my neutral corner. I will be there. You let me know when you want to eat. You know, it's, it's yeah. kind of kind of how we are, you know. It's special. There's a level of comfort, but obviously you still have that love and nobody knows you like that person. It's a great partnership. Right, right, right. I'm, I'm getting there. I'm only five years in. Yay. Look, <laughs> I remember when that happened. I remember when it was all new. So, yeah. and I can't believe that it's been five years. It seems it's been like five it was years. A, it seems like I met with yesterday. you. Right. Was it right, right before? After, right I after you were married. Right after. Right after you got married. Right. Right after, right after I got married. Mm -hmm. Before like a my kids. Like I was rested. Months. I was living life. It yeah. was nice. I was yeah. like, yeah, I'm going to work out. I'm going to work hard and then work out and then maybe eat at you know dinner at 10 p.m. Now I'm just like exhausted by it. Right. sympathetic. Right. <laughs> life has changed. But all jokes aside and, and yeah. lightheartedness, you know, we are talking a pretty intense subject matter tonight. Which Chris and I mean no disrespect. We want to make sure that people recognize also as we're going to talk about things that are heartbreaking and devastating that life is beautiful. We are blessed, a lot of us, and to always try to see that silver lining. Unfortunately, there are a lot of cases in the headlines and it is violence against women. And it's something I speak about often, and I'm not going to shy away from cases like this one that are really important to to point out and also to have experts on who can talk to us a little more about what to look for, what red flags to to kind of keep an eye out for when you are early on dating. So we're going to talk about the case of Anna Walsh tonight, and it is a case of a, a missing woman who authorities believe has been murdered. Many of you have heard about this case last month, especially. It's been now over a month she's been missing. Anna Walsh is a 39-year-old mother of three and successful real estate executive. She was last seen on New Year's Day at her family's Cohasset, Massachusetts home. And she was reported missing a few days later on January 4th. I'm sure a lot of you have heard about this case in the news. It's really sad. Mother of three little boys, which is just devastating because mm -hmm. she is believed to have been murdered. And um, although they have not found a body, everybody who knows her says constantly she would never leave her children by choice. So it yeah. only leaves really one other option. Anna Walsh's mysterious disappearance from their Cohasset, Massachusetts home was New Year's Day. 
the story is that she was at home with her children and her husband on New Year's Eve. They had some friends over. They had a dinner party. A friend left, saw her around one in the morning. And then she had told that friend that she was going to be going to D.C. the next day. Anna is a successful real estate executive. And so she worked in D.C., although she lived in Massachusetts. So she would kind of commute Monday through Friday or several days during the week and then come home to her family on the weekend. So there was some kind of work emergency that she was going to have to be at work for New Year's Day that next day. The problem is that there's no indication that she ever arrived at the airport. And her cell phone, credit, and debit cards have been inactive since her disappearance on January 1st. So if this is a woman who ran away, she didn't take anything with her, and she's left no kind of trace, which is just unusual. So this is why authorities do believe that, unfortunately, she was murdered. There have been many signs that make them believe it was the husband who did it, which we know law enforcement, you always look to the male closest in her life, whether it's a husband, somebody she's been cheating with, a boyfriend, that's where you look first, because unfortunately, it's likely when a woman's been murdered, she's been murdered by the man closest to her. Absolutely. And in this situation, that would be her husband. We know that she is lasting New Year's Day from other people. Her husband claims that she kissed him goodbye early morning hours of New Year's Day and said that she was going to head to D.C. She was going to take a a ride share to the airport. Well, there's no evidence that she ever had a ride share. And what's unusual is he doesn't actually end up calling and reaching out to her until or her employer until three days later. So she's now been missing three days. He calls the employer on Wednesday, January 4th. And basically he says, I don't really know what's going on or or I haven't heard from Anna. I don't want to be too worried, but have you heard from her? And it's a little off because if you're a mother of three and you call your children every night and you haven't heard from your wife in three days, that would make me, that would make people suspicious. I could see why that is suspicious, but we don't really know their relationship. We just know what other people are saying that she would likely call her kids every day. The employer and her husband ended up calling authorities and he actually for about a day is throwing authorities off. He's giving them different details about his morning and what he's done and basically misleading the investigation. Right, Chris? Right, 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 right. You know, there are certain things that you mentioned that I actually want to just jump back into from an investigative standpoint, as far as when you deal with a missing person, especially a missing woman, you have to deal with this victimology. You have to go back and find out what she's into, what she's been doing and investigate everybody that has been in within arm's reach of her within the past 24, 48 hours. Sometimes when you begin those investigations, they don't go too far outside of where you begin from, like the husband or a spouse or a boyfriend or something to that effect. There are certain points of this case that immediately raise the suspicions of an investigator. Like the fact that She's going out of town. She has a ride share, but there's no mention because ride share is, is something that has to be set up prior to, you know, there's no, no indication yes, that there was any type of ride share that had ever been set up. So I guess you can look at that from one of two ways that she said that to maybe get in the vehicle with somebody else. But 
you got so many friends and family members of hers that says that she would never leave her kids. She would never do anything like that. And then you start looking at the fact that she left items that, especially a person that's in real estate or in business, the way that she was leaving her cell phone and her credit cards, you know, she's just, it's that, that raises huge red flags when you're starting an investigation. And it's hard, especially when you're an onlooker, you're watching the news, you're hearing all this. It's hard not to insert yourself. This is kind of the problem with the whole trial by media. Not to insert yourself into somebody else's shoes. Whenever I would travel, obviously we traveled a lot for reasonable doubt. Whenever I would travel, if I was leaving early mornings, getting in a ride share, a lot of times we did because, you know, my husband would have to stay home with the little one. Yeah. I would always text him when I got to the airport, text right. him, okay, I made it to the airport. Now I'm on my flight, landed from my flight. And so naturally we do this thing where it's like, well, what do I do? We have to keep in mind, obviously, for purposes of a case and making sure that somebody isn't tried by media, that every couple is different. And mm -hmm. maybe this was something that she would just get on a flight and not talk to him for a few days. But it really is his word versus everybody else's. And friends and family made it sound like, no, she called every day. She would check in her, her norm. So not surprisingly, based on some evidence that we'll get into that a law enforcement did find at the house and elsewhere, her husband, Brian Walsh, was arrested. He has been charged with murder. He's also been charged with improper transport of remains and misleading police in connection with Anna's disappearance and presumed death. He has since pleaded not guilty to all three charges. And so he is obviously going through court proceedings now. And Anna's remains have yet to be recovered. So mm. most people are presuming she is dead. And sadly, that that's probably likely, right, Chris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had investigated missing persons cases such as this. As a matter of fact, you remember uh, we talked about one of the cases that was that I investigated that was actually, it's almost 30 years old now. There are certain things that happen when you, when you deal with a certain type of person, a mother, especially a mother of multiple children who she loved and cared for and was always uh, there for and present in her children's lives. You don't usually find women like that, that just up and disappear, you know, and they, they leave without a trace. When you have as many red flags that we talk, that we'll talk about in this case, it's, it's hard to get past the husband. It's extremely hard. Speaking of that bias and putting yourself in the individual shoes, that's something that it's hard to overcome. And yeah. I always say there's the defense attorney Fatima and then there's Fatima in, in my different roles. And this is, this one's hard for me because obviously you always want to presume innocence and it is innocence until proven guilty. I'm going to let you talk about some of this evidence that I know is damning evidence. I'll leave that to you. Right. But one thing that I can help to do as a mother is say, man, I just can't imagine a mom leaving her three kids uh, and her three young children. And it just, devastates me to the core when I hear that a mother's been taken from her children because y'all for the most part majority of the time no one is gonna love children like a mama we've seen it on our show that unconditional love where it's like I don't care if my kid killed someone I want them home with me 
Right. I get it. Right. I get right. it. That's a, that's a mom for you. So this kind of case really, it haunts me to know that someone would do this and not think of, and we know they, they don't think of the children. They don't think of everyone that's going to be, they don't even think of when it's a husband, oh, I'm going to be taken away too. And it's just so sad. It's so selfish. And it, it just blows my mind that somebody is capable of it. But I'm ready to hear, in your opinion, what you find to be, so far, pretty damning evidence against Brian Walsh. Because I do want to just, disclaimer, we don't know all the evidence. We don't have it all. We do have some that law enforcement have released. And we know that the prosecutor at the arraignment uh, and the bail hearing had basically set out the very strong evidence that they had so far. But since then... Since yeah. that all occurred, we know that there's probably been different tests and lab work coming back in and forensics to sh possibly show guilt or innocence. So we right. don't know all the evidence. But based on what we do right now, Chris, which way are you leaning and what is making you feel that way? Uh, I'm, I'm leaning towards guilt. And I do believe in, you know, innocent until proven guilty. But there's, you know, this is a circumstantial but. case. <laughs> this is a circumstantial case. And, you know, just like any circumstantial case, you need a lot of overwhelming evidence. Well, right now, from what we know, it's circumstantial, right? There could right, now be absolutely. direct evidence. Right. Yeah. It could be. that. We will never know exactly what's in, a, in an investigator's file until that case goes to trial. Mm -hmm. But prosecutors announced that they obtained surveillance footage from January 2nd showing that Brian was at Home Depot purchasing $450 worth of cleaning supplies mm. and cash while wearing a surgical mask and gloves. And maybe he wanted to surprise his wife with the clean house when she came Maybe, home. maybe he did. Maybe he did. I think that argument might be weak if I used it in court. <laughs> right. Sadly, that guy. is, that does but, not. And in cash, right? He paid, in he paid cash. for it in cash. But here's the here's the biggest thing that makes it look bad. During his his interrogation with law enforcement, he never mentioned that. He never mentioned that he went mm -hmm. to Home Depot or uh, purchased these items or even any of that stuff. You know, he, he bought things like mop buckets and tarps, tape, other items. All of this is on January second. Anytime so. you see a tarp purchase, no bueno. <laughs> exactly. Cleaner. Exactly. And he said something like, I think he had said, oh, my mother needed me. So I went to help my mother with some things and I ran errands for her. And he said that he went to CVS and stores like that that also have surveillance. So when they pulled that, they didn't see him. Right. It's not good. Right. Not good at all. So not you're good showing at all. up on cameras where you shouldn't be mm -hmm. and you're not showing, not showing up, up on, on cameras, cameras where you, where you should, should be. And that mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's one of those things that investigators are going to look at it, and, it, and it makes things look a lot worse for you. Well, especially because if you are innocent and you mm -hmm. are there to help them in the investigation, you want to clear your name immediately so that the law enforcement can focus on who the real perpetrator is. Right. So if you are misleading them and saying, oh, I just forgot where I went or saying you're, you went one place and you didn't go there. That's problematic in that you should be wanting to help find your wife and you're throwing them off. Why are you throwing them off? That just yeah. does not look good. Mm -hmm. So not the smartest. Yeah. What else has made you feel like mm, likely did this? And we touched on this uh, earlier tonight. We know that she's a business person. Most business people cannot get 
too far away from their phones. You have to have your phones. You have to have credit cards. You have to make purchases on a whim. And it's just like that for business people. Her phone, neither her phone or her credit card has been used since that time. That may not sound as bad, but when you couple that with everything else that's a part of this case, it's another layer of evidence that makes him look even more guilty. And you know, there are the searches on the child's iPad. It was Google searches, Google right? Google searches on the child's iPad. Uh, and what and, are those Google searches? <laughs> oh man, this is like, we're laughing. It's awful. It's it is awful, awful what it is, but we're laughing because if he did this, he's got to be the dumbest criminal, dumbest murderer ever. Yeah. I mean, these searches are one of them says 10 ways to, to 10 ways to dispose of a dead body. If you really need to, how to stop a body from decomposing, how long before a body starts to smell. These are, oh, these are three and these are very unsettling, especially when I saw, you couple all of that together with everything, all the other circumstantial evidence. Uh, and these are all done the morning y'all of January 1st. So she's supposed to be on a flight early morning hours of January 1st. And these are all 4.55 AM, January 1st, 5.28 AM, 5.47. It's like, he's awake and they are like panic searches. How to dispose of a 115 pound woman's body. Mm -hmm. He basically said, how to dispose of my wife's body. Right. Okay. So here's one that was interesting. December 27th, right? This is before she goes missing. He Googles, what's the best date to divorce for a man? One, everyone just so you know, you have to, wherever you're residing, that's the place you're going to have to file for divorce. So it's not like you can just move elsewhere briefly and then file there. But we have established if it was Brian, the sharpest tool on the shed. As my client, I would cringe at some of these things that he's Googled, especially those early morning hours. Now, one thing is he's using this on his child's iPad. So that's the thing with Google when it comes to doing searches and it comes to a computer. One thing in your favor, you see this in a lot of cases. It came up even in the Casey Anthony case. You'll see where a family computer or a computer at somebody's home is being used and certain Google searches are happening. There's no way that law enforcement can prove that you did those, you performed those Google searches. There's just no way, unless it's a login that you had to create or that only you knew. And sometimes even, even that, other people get your login. But if it's a shared computer, if it's somebody else's computer, you can always say, those aren't my searches. I didn't do that. Yeah. The problem here is his oldest child is like six years old. Five yeah. or six years old. So you're going to have a tough time saying your son performed these searches. Can mm -hmm. you say that somebody else performed the searches as somebody else who was in the house? Possibly, but it's not going to be a very strong argument. Um, I will say this, Chris. One thing this does kind of point to for me as a defense attorney is that he's panicking. He's Googling everything afterward as if he almost did this and just did not prepare to do right. what he did. Mm -hmm. 10 ways to dispose of a dead body. At, he's Googling that at 5.47 a.m. So we would presume she's just been murdered and he's panicking. He didn't look right. any of this stuff before. That will work as far as getting you out of the premeditated, right? Mm -hmm. We know in some cases premeditated can be argued to be a few minutes that you possibly premeditated something, but it really is going, at least this part could go to help him in his case to show 
he had not been planning this for a long time. He was not prepared to do this. Right. Was he capable? Had he thought about it? Maybe. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he had, but it happened this night probably by impulse. Maybe there was some alcohol involved after a night of celebration. Who knows? But there are numerous searches, 6.25 a.m. How long for someone to be missing to inherit? That one's a little sad. That one's really sad. Honestly, like you're already thinking how. So now you've killed her. Now you're past how to dispose of the body. Now you're already thinking about how you're going to inherit money. So we know Mm -hmm. for this man... If he didn't, then it's mm-hmm. not just it's not just killing her, possibly because he wanted her. It's it's likely also that there was some money involved here that he wanted. It gets real graphic. Six three four a.m. on the first. Can you throw away body parts? Throw away the status if he pleads or he's found guilty one day. His children can see this. Mm-hmm. That he's googled things like this. Can you throw away body parts? That's their mother. Yeah. Um, is a hacksaw I mean, it goes best, on. the best tool to dismember someone? Is a hacksaw the best tool to dismember someone? Yeah. How to clean blood from wooden floor. Mm-hmm. Luminal to detect blood. What happens when you put body parts in ammonia? Is it better to throw crime scene clothes away or wash them? These are all searches that were apparently done in the hours of the early morning hours of January 1st. Can you be charged with murder without a body? I mean, really? You Google. Yeah. Can you identify a body with broken teeth? That's sad. That is very sad. Mm -hmm. So obviously something went down that night at those early morning hours and it, it's more than just she got into a ride chair and disappeared or right. she walked outside and disappeared something happened in that house and these searches are telling a story of his mindset which is very scary and i can't help but wonder if they're worse things right if he committed this crime there had to have been signs in the marriage. And what kinds of signs do you guys look for? Law enforcement's always looking for the motive. What mm-hmm. kinds of things? So, yeah, we always look for those three things that I think I've talked about it a lot on reasonable doubt, the MMO, motive means opportunity. Does he have the opportunity? Absolutely, yeah, it's the opportunity. The circumstantial evidence that we've talked about certainly suggests that he does have the means to do something like this. Uh, motive. I understand that she had a pretty large portfolio of properties, something like $2.8 million in net worth. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, money is always wow. a motive. That, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, since 2018, Anna's been connected to eight properties in Massachusetts, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. She's since sold half of the properties and still owned four at the time of her disappearance. Less than a week before she was reported missing, she closed on the sale of an apartment in Revere, Massachusetts for uh, $220,000. She purchased the apartment only two years earlier for $137,000. So a 60% markup there. And that was a week before she went missing that she closed on. So she's doing well. And I actually went to her Instagram and it's still up. You can go and look at it. It's really sad. It's basically an Instagram dedicated to two things her three sons and her work. You Mm -hmm. can tell that she loved work. 
And her, she left her coworkers constantly posting their meetings, their lunches, what they're up to. This is a woman who was working really hard for her family and wanted to make something for herself. And I think that the individual looking up how they, you could inherit after this, obviously that means somebody related, right? Mm-hmm. And another thing about the Google searches that's really important for everybody to understand is what this is doing is eliminating some defenses that the defense team could have, right? Whether yeah. or not he understood what he was doing, whether or not he was in the right frame of mind, or if he's going to plead any kind of insanity or, or health issue. His Google searches are indicative of him being aware of what happened was wrong, the wrongfulness of the crime and trying to cover it up. And so that that takes away a defense right there as well. I know we only have a portion of some of the evidence in this case. How would you go about defending a case like this? It would really depend. Whenever these cases come out, in the beginning, you're getting enough for the probable cause. You're trying to get an mm-hmm. indictment. You're only showing so many, so much of your cards. The prosecutor is not going to automatically turn over all the evidence they have. It really does take a while. It takes too long, unfortunately. Yeah. For a defense team, you are automatically being questioned on what's the defense and what do you, what's your opinion on the case. And you really don't know as a defense attorney in those early days because the prosecution will always know far more in those early times. And I don't think that the prosecution showed all of their cards. What they have shown so far, it makes it look like a very tough case. It's an uphill battle. It's not just circumstantial, to be honest, because there are what's come out in addition to the Google searches and everything else is they also discussed how they did recover some items. So there was certainly DNA that was recovered from slippers and a Tyvek suit, which is that industrial full body hazmat suit uh, Mm -hmm. during the investigation. And it was Anna and Brian's DNA. So you have this hazmat suit on. I can see why Brian's DNA would be on it, but why Anna's, right? So the defense has to jump through some hoops if that's the case. If there is any kind of blood, Anna's blood found in the basement, if there, I know that they also went to a local trash site, law enforcement did, and they recovered some things there, right? So prosecutors also revealed that investigators retrieved 10 trash bags of evidence. Um, Evidence includes part of Anna's necklace, her vaccination card, cleaning products, a hacksaw, and a hatchet. Um, some of those and, items were some of the things that he purchased over at Home Depot too, right? Mm-hmm, right. And now they were currently discarded nearby at a local dump site where law enforcement went and did a search for any kind of evidence there. And they found these things. And apparently some of her DNA is, mm-hmm. is on these items. That doesn't look good. Once again, we don't know the extent of it. We don't know how much DNA. We don't know what kind of DNA, right? We can get into you. There's touch DNA. Sometimes when you live together and you're a spouse, if it's mostly circumstantial evidence and including some DNA, even some blood, depending on the items it's found on, you can always make an argument while they live together. They're going, his fingerprints are going to be at the scene. Her DNA is going to be on his clothes. Um, her blood being on certain clothes, that could even be explained somehow, right? It's not like people don't get injured and then in the house, you know, somebody doesn't 
get a cut or whatever, and there's a little blood, the problem is going to be where that was found. And right now we know it's on a hazmat suit, which doesn't look good, and a hacksaw and a hatchet. These are items used to injure someone. And so you really have to just take the punches as they come. When you're a defense attorney, you are constantly trying to catch up to all the evidence that's coming at you. You're constantly requesting it. And then prosecution is not delivering it when they should. Mm-hmm. You have a right to it immediately once the prosecution has it. But do you get it? No. So it is unfair. It is an uphill battle. Being a defense attorney, it's a difficult job. And you kind of take the swings as they come and you've got to get creative and figure out ways around that. Because the truth is sometimes evidence can look really suspect and it can make somebody look really guilty. But oftentimes, and we know from reasonable doubt, no matter how guilty a person may look or how bad the evidence may look, there is a possibility that the person is innocent. Here, I would just say I don't envy this defense attorney. I think that there's a lot of tough things that they're going to have to overcome here. Um, but my my first approach would be creating the plan once you have all the evidence. Because you don't want to explain away one thing and yeah. then that yeah. comes back yes. to haunt you by evidence that's found later. You just have to wait and you have to create it, the story following all the evidence and you have to say, okay, this is a case where we're probably going... Because a good defense attorney is also an attorney who gets you a good plea deal. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. That is also yeah. a good defense attorney. When the evidence is just against you and it doesn't look good and you're facing death penalty or life, a good attorney is going to say, look, we may not be able to overcome a lot of this. So let me try to get you the best deal that we can. And that's something that an attorney is going to have to evaluate after they have all the evidence. And we know that it's going to take time them all this so everything we have right now it's all speculation we know that anna and her sister they were raised in war-torn serbia so she's lived through years of ethnic conflict and a genocide and she comes here for a better life and then something like this ends up happening right and she was living that american dream she really was she was she had her children she was working hard as a woman that's difficult to raise children and also have a career that you're passionate about and spend time doing that. But we also know in his defense, apparently he was a good dad. He had been home with the children, taking care of the children most of the time. The problem is why. And here's where we really get into the weeds, everyone, where information, it's all outside of really what's happened, but it is somewhat pertinent. So one thing that has Um, been revealed about Brian was he was on house arrest when all this happened. So that is another issue as to why when he's telling law enforcement where he's been, he needs to be accurate because he's been on house arrest and he's only he's only allowed to go certain places and he needs to get that pre-approved. And obviously these visits to Home Depot and wherever else he went to get cleaning supplies, those were not pre-approved. So let's talk a little bit about why Brian is even on house arrest to begin with. Brian Walsh is actually on house arrest after pleading guilty to selling two fake Andy Warhol paintings for um $80,000. And yeah. during a federal court hearing, Brian's wife, Anna Walsh, wrote a letter to the judge to show her support for her husband ahead of his sentencing while he had been on home confinement. In that letter, 
to the judge, Anna Rhodes, during the, these eight months, our families was able to get together during many of the milestones. Our youngest son, son turned one. Our middle son started to speak, and our eldest son, who had just started kindergarten when we saw you last, is only a few weeks away from completing the year and preparing for the first grade. He also lost his first tooth. She also says not only did he save her life, but he also brought her an entire family comfort. He also brought her and her entire family comfort and joy during the course of her illness. She, she wrote all of this in a letter to a judge for her husband. Yeah, so basically he's accused of being a swindler. Yeah. Friend of South Korea gave him the Andy Warhol paintings to sell. And then what he did was he took the paintings, he posted them on eBay, the real ones, and then sold for $80,000. And then when that individual got them and took them apart, realized, okay, these aren't the real ones, I got the fake ones. And then he never gave any of the money to the friend that he originally took the Andy Warhol paintings yeah. from. So he basically is evading the friend and the buyer. And the buyer tries to get a hold of him saying, you know, hey, these are fakes. I need my money back. Eventually, I think he only pays 30000 because he doesn't have the rest of the money. And mm -hmm. so that's when the buyer decides to take this to court. And yes, he does plead guilty to this. The judge is lenient on him because probably likely he didn't have any other criminal history of this kind of swindling or, or selling stolen goods or anything of that nature. And so the judge does give him an house arrest. And this is basically a letter that Anna writes on behalf of her husband to the judge, which it sounds like she's very grateful that he's home and he's helping with the boys and she's grateful for the second chance. But we also don't know what goes on behind closed doors, right? Yeah. It could just be that she absolutely needs her husband around in order for her to work in order for her to thrive. There are rumors, these are just rumors, that she was hoping to move on and divorce him. And she was probably trying to save up some money to do so. It looks like he wanted to leave her and didn't want to be with her anymore. Now, there, there are sources that have told investigators that Brian Walsh lived an affluent lifestyle. So he used to host dinners for groups in Boston that cost like $20,000, $20,000 on a dinner. I get it. There are people who live like that. And I'm not going to judge what people do with their money. But my Lord, I dropped 200 on a dinner. And I'm like, I oh, my know, God, right. we got to eat at home. Good. Yeah, we got no. leftovers. We got to have some for the rest the of the life, week. <laughs> lifestyles of the rich and famous. So, yeah. you know, he liked he liked finer things. Walsh claimed to have made his money creating a software program in college that people say that's not true. There's also allegations, and this is sad. They basically claimed that the father wrote him out of the will when they got into an argument, and that when the father ended up dying, he fraudulently changed the will and basically stole money from his mother and other siblings and put himself back in the will. I don't know if he was ever found guilty of this or if this is just allegations, but Apparently, there was a pretty strained relationship between him and his family over this. So he sounds like somebody who will do anything for money. Right, and right, right. As a prosecutor, you're going to make this connection with the Google search of how long till you inherit, right? Mm -hmm. This is someone who they're putting money and the wealthy lifestyle before their own family. Yeah. And if you think your wife is about to leave you, 
Or if you want to leave your wife, you also don't want to leave behind everything she's now accumulated through her hard work, right? That That's the picture that the prosecution is going to paint for sure in this case. And it doesn't help that he does have this other charge and that he's known to do whatever he has to do to make some extra money to live this fraudulent, affluent lifestyle. Right. We've talked a lot about Brian and talked about his history and things of that nature, but, you know, I would hate for anyone to listen to this podcast and not get anything from it. They just know the history of he and his wife. And, and I would want some of them one to, because I'm, anytime you, any case that I've worked that's had a domestic feel to it or domestic influence to it, there are usually signs that you see with a suspect way before any of this ever happens, any of any abuse starts or any Google search starts. There's usually mm-hmm. some sort of signs that you see. And it's about. so wild because a domestic kind of relationship is the extremes. These are people who you often see when somebody's charged, you see the wedding photo up, you see these happy moments with their children. And they probably really are happy in those times, right? People change over time. You start to see their true colors. Maybe Anna didn't know what her husband was doing. Maybe she did, but maybe she didn't realize he was placing her family in jeopardy and committing these crimes. So you just see this. It's the saddest because there's this picture of this very happy family and all your hopes and dreams. And it's like your husband, your wife, it's the person you trust the most. And it's also the most devastating when it goes so wrong because people are capable of some ugly things. I don't know if I've ever shared on the podcast, but when I had first started in law, I thought that I wanted to be a family law attorney. (laughs) The team of Silver reveals her her former life. I thought I I loved family law. Well, I, and what's funny is when I got to law school, so I had always, it was like growing up, I had seen different family members go through, thankfully not my parents, but different family members go through custody battles and dif- divorce proceedings. And then they'd get sent to a mediator and the mediator would help them come to you. Or sometimes if it was an amicable divorce, a lot of people can do this. You can go to a paralegal or an attorney to help you draft up a marriage settlement agreement. And I always thought, I want to be that person. That was in my mind what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people split in the best way possible and keep it amicable for the children. And it happens in a lot of marriages when people want to co-parent the right way for their children. But the majority of them, they end up getting really ugly. And so that's what I thought I wanted to do. And then I'm in law school and I'm taking, obviously, criminal justice courses and I'm starting to fall in love with that. And I'm just acing those classes. I'm doing really well. And then I take family law courses, which is supposed to be my route. And I hadn't even been working for a family law lawyer for a while. And I was writing briefs and I had worked for a judge who was working in family law. It was really cool. But I was like failing those classes miserably. I mean, I wasn't failing, but I definitely was not getting the highest scores. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Family law is supposed to be my jam. And I just eventually, obviously, gravitated toward criminal. It was a calling no matter what. But in the beginning, I still wanted to dabble in family law because I had put so much time into studying it and I had purchased all the books and I was part of all the organizations. So I did a little family law, very small stint. And I tell you, to this day, tell people, do criminal. You, you, you will be much happier doing criminal law 
Mm-hmm. You will be able to sleep. I sleep better at night doing criminal defense than I ever would doing family law. Oh, yeah. Those proceedings get so ugly. Your client gets so ugly. There's nothing they won't do. They just stoop so low. They are not placing the children first. They're not putting the well-being of their family first. It's just suddenly, you know those fights you used to get into when you're in high school or college and they're just petty and you're just, you're fighting over every little thing and everything is extremely dramatic, right? Like, who did you text and what did you do? And everything's just, I mean, it's a 10 on drama. Uh That happens all over again, whether you're 60, 70, 30, going through a divorce. It happens all over again. And it is so much drama that I was like, I'm not doing this. I feel like I'm in a Real Housewives episode every single day. (laughs) I was actually representing a lot of the husbands. And I was seeing Uh how ugly wives can get and how manipulative they can get with the children. And I just felt really bad. And I thought, I can't do this every day. This is so sad. And I wasn't married yet. And so I felt like I'm never going to get married if I continue doing this because this is not a route I ever want to go. But the point I see all of this to say is just how ugly it can get. The moment you've decided there's no more love, you're, you want to leave the relationship, it's not for you. There is, there's a lot of people out there. There's nothing they won't do. And we know this. We see it in the headlines every day. So that is a picture that I believe the prosecution is going to paint in this case. And if you have the evidence to back that up, they're going to have a very strong motive. And anytime you have a strong motive and then you have some of the evidence to to plug in and fit that story, yeah. you're going to hook a jury. Yeah. Because a jury, even though you don't need a motive, a jury loves a motive. Right. They do. Mm-hmm. Oh, she was going to leave him. She was already putting money into a certain account. He found out. I mean, there's so much speculation that comes with a motive when the prosecution's putting it together. It does drive me crazy, but I also see how it will hook a jury and they won't even, they, they suddenly won't even really see the evidence. They'll start basing the evidence on the motive and the evidence will be there, whether it was a little or a lot, like it will suddenly just, that's going to fit because right. it's fit your story. So that's one reason I think in these kind of situations, once they start digging all that up about him, mm-hmm. they're going to have problems, but there's. There's something else that we have not divulged that I think is another problem. It's another hurdle. And as a defense attorney, I'm going to say, well, he was never found guilty. And I think this this is important because it's just allegations. But it, it doesn't look good. So basically, in a court filing submitted as part of her husband's sentencing memo, Anna had also written, you know, she wrote that letter in support of her husband. She wrote a little bit about their story. She said it was love at first sight for me. I feel the same way about Brian to this day. And she's saying this in 2021. Um, We tried a long distance relationship for a few years until I moved permanently to Boston in 2015. We got engaged and married the same year. And the following year, we welcomed our first son, Thomas. So it sounds like things, you know, were moving pretty quickly for them. They were head over heels in love. Mm-hmm. But a few years after Anna started dating Brian, apparently she filed a police report claiming that he threatened to kill her during their courtship. But then she refused to cooperate with investigators when they attempted to find her allegation. Okay. So there, there is this allegation that he apparently threatened to kill her and a friend. And she did file that police report. And as many people know, especially if it's a threat and it's not like a visible injury, if you decide not to pursue it further, then it's not really going to go anywhere. And the allegation is going to remain unfounded and 
can't say much when there's an allegation, right? It could just be maybe she was upset at him and decided, I'm going to do this and ruin his life. And she made it up. There's no proving it. But if it's true, it doesn't look good. And what's even sadder is that if that's true, she did go on to marry him. And by no means am I saying here that she did this to herself, if this is what happened and he killed her. Never want to make the victim suddenly the bad person in this as if she caused harm to herself because what if he did this what he did was evil and there's no way any person can think somebody's going to do that to them really i mean even if you say i'm going to kill you people have said some pretty harsh things and done pretty harsh things and you still don't realize what they're capable of especially a lot of people may know this who have been in domestic violence issues, especially when the other individual is talking about how much they love you and they're making it up to you and they don't they don't show that side again. And they're just coming at you hard with the I'll never do this again. I love you more than anything. Let's get married and I'll take care of you. That can really persuade somebody to think, well, maybe he was just not thinking straight and it was attributed to something else. And so she married him. But that's going to be an issue, whether or not that's going to be able to come in because it was unfounded. It's definitely more prejudicial mm-hmm. than uh, if there was a conviction there that could come in. But the defense hopefully is going to be able to keep that out. Although the, a judge could say, well, this is really going to go to motive. He's you know, threatened this in the past. But that's ultimately what happens in that kind of situation, whether something comes in. It's something that needs to be argued in front of a judge. The judge will make the decision. Different things that you need to look at is whether or not there was an actual conviction of that, whether or not they're going to try to dig up whether or not other ex-girlfriends have gone through this, whether he's threatened them. They're going to look for any police report that may have another ex filing something. But oftentimes we see just kind of like we did, we talked about in that Kristen Smart case early on, um, where a lot of evidence came in that was highly prejudicial. And even though maybe it shouldn't have come in, it it does. And it persuades the jury. Something like this could do that, except she married him afterwards. So maybe it wasn't that bad, right? Right. Maybe it was just um, a figment of her imagination or maybe he, it was taken out of context. Mm -hmm. If she did file a police report, it was obviously pretty serious, but serious enough that she didn't end up. Um, But I mean, Law enforcement, this is a big deal, right, Chris? Yeah, it is. It is. All of that will come into play. All of it will come into play during an investigation of a case like this. As much of it needs to come in, into a court as humanly possible. Not to make him look guilty, it's just so that the jury has a full picture of their relationship. We don't know what this police report looks like, and that's going to also make a difference. Is this a police report that's just drafted by law enforcement? And they are repeating what they claim that Anna told them. Or most of the time now, especially where I live, if there's any kind of claim like this, they're going to videotape you telling them what happened or ask you to write something. So if they have any proof of that and it's in her writing or a video of her stating this to an officer, that can have probative value and possibly outweigh the prejudice. But if there's no way to substantiate whatsoever this claim is, and it's just an officer saying what she told him and he wrote a police report and that's it, that's not likely going to be enough. There needs to be more. So corroboration is really important. You can't just bring in everything that's going to make this guy look bad. 
to prove that he committed murder. But I have right. a feeling they they might have plenty of other evidence. I remember we had a couple of cases on reasonable doubt where family members who are talking about their relationship and how they were a great couple and they never even knew about some of the things that was happening in those relationships. And then it took us looking into their past or looking into some of their relationship as a whole and finding some of these police reports that came up and, you know, it paints a whole new picture about the relationship itself. It really does. And the, and law enforcement goes digging real far. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. will, they start looking up all the exes and any woman who's ever had contact with this guy, what kind of guy he is, friends, everyone. And the truth comes out, even in our worst times, sometimes that's going to be used to define us in a moment. Yeah. Well, Chris, as much as you and I can weigh the different sides here and the evidence, when it comes down to it, there's a lot of psychological issues involved here, right? The right. mental state of Brian, possibly, and of Anna, and as to why she would stay with somebody if she did file that report. So I'm really excited about our guests and can't wait to bring her in because I love being able to teach our listeners how to make better informed decisions when yeah. it comes to not just dating, but better understanding the complex ways that our brains work and that we as people interact. And so I think she's going to offer us some insight on that. Everyone, we want to welcome Katherine Ramslin to the podcast today. Katherine is a professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University in Pennsylvania, where she also teaches criminal justice and serves as the assistant provost. She holds a master's in forensic psychology from John Jay College of Criminal Justice, a master's in clinical psychology from Duquesne University, a master's in criminal justice from DeSales University, and a PhD in philosophy from Rutgers. I don't think oh, she likes and an MFA too. I just and got an that. MFA. <laughs> yes. My goodness. She has been a therapist and a consultant and Dr. Ramsland has published over a thousand articles. And I was going to say 69 books, but she just corrected me and she just finished her 70th book. Oh my gosh. A lot of her books are on the psychology of serial killers, such as Psychology of Death Investigations, Confession of a Serial Killer, um, The BTK Killer. So the list goes on and on. We are just really excited to have Dr. Ramsland on. And welcome to the Crime and Cookie Just podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. 70 books. So Chris just wrote his first book and he probably oh. wants to pull out his hair. Congratulations. Uh, I, well, thank you. I appreciate it. I, you know, the writing the first book was, was a hair pulling out experience, but I'm working on my second now. But 70, how, tell me about that experience. I mean, how has writing been for you? Well, after my first book, I never wanted to write again. After really? my second book, I wanted to do nothing but write. Really? Okay. The difference was the first one was academic and the second one was commercial. Mm -hmm. And I had a very different experience in those two different worlds. And uh, also the second one was a biography of Anne Rice. So okay. I had a blast, of, you know, trying to master that form and learn her world, immerse in it. And uh, from there, I mean, a lot of my work has been stuff I really want to explore. Um, I, I don't like writing something I already know because mm -hmm. then writing is difficult. But if well, I'm using it to learn, it's it's fabulous. It's my passion. That makes wow. a lot of sense, actually. Hey, you are obviously somebody who loves learning. I mean, all those degrees, 
It's funny. I always tell people if school could have been a career, I would have just done that because I really enjoyed school. And I felt like every time I was getting very used to it and hitting the grades that I wanted to, it was time to graduate. <laughs> you know, finally getting those three days, finally getting the hang of everything. And then, oh, you graduate undergrad and then oh, graduated from law school. But I could have, if it wasn't for student loans and I had the means, I could have just kept studying and learning. And it's still not out of the question, especially with psychology, because yeah. for Chris and I doing what we do, obviously he's a homicide investigator. I'm a criminal defense attorney. A lot of our work deals heavily with understanding people, the criminal mind. Mm -hmm. Also, we had, um, which is still airs, Reasonable Doubt on Discovery Plus right now. And in doing that, you're sitting down and interviewing mm -hmm. many folks who have endured some serious trauma. And so we don't, we never took that lightly. So we always wanted to learn a little more about the psychology of these individuals and the psychology of the perpetrators. So it's really interesting stuff to us as well. But I cannot believe you've made a career out of that. I'm all the way. I, I've been very lucky. I've had a lot of great opportunities. And I always, when I tell students, always be ready, prepare yourself for when that door opens, you can jump through it with everything you've got. Um, because those opportunities pop up, you know, unlooked for. And mm -hmm. if you are ready and you think you can meet the challenge, you should just jump into it. Wow. That is, uh, that is extremely deep. And I, I'll take some of your advice, but I'll probably be calling you again, actually. You, what was that you said again, doctor? Why, why am I doing this? <laughs> well, I like diving into what you, what you enjoy, because yes. that's what's going to keep you going. If you're not enjoying it, you're just, no, it's too much. But if you're enjoying it, then keep doing it and see where it leads. So, and that has led you to authoring a lot of books mm -hmm. and teaching. I do want to ask a, a little more. We know in this case, Anna Walsh's husband, Brian Walsh, we know he's not a serial killer. That's not what we're dealing with here. Can you briefly, other than the fact that he hasn't killed other people that we know of, can you briefly describe a little bit about what you've learned about him from the news and the media that would just show you, oh, no, we're not dealing with a serial killer? I don't know that we're not. Oh. Mm. I mean, look at Dennis Rader. He killed for a period of time without anyone suspecting. He passed as normal. He was leader of his church. He was husband and father and had a steady job, volunteered for the Boy Scouts. So I wouldn't say somebody's definitely not a serial killer. I'd never say that. <laughs> I guess I say that. And I totally jumped the gun on that. Um, and I am not the psychologist, which is why we have we have you on. Thank you. You know, Chris and I were talking earlier about these Google searches that Brian made, and it's following the disappearance of his wife, right? It's during that time that she's missing. These Google searches are quite incriminating. What is that something that somebody who's done this over and over would do? Is there a messy cover-up like that? Well, it's very hard to generalize about serial killers because we have over 5,000 documented. They're not all alike. Um, yes, yeah, some are sloppy, some are smart. Um, but... And, and also, I think he did it on his son's iPad. Not So that's one thing. But there is an attitude called narcissistic immunity that we do see among these killers that they believe they're not going to get caught. They, No matter how stupid their mistakes are, they just have this idea that they're somehow um, immune. Like they're, 
no one's going to penetrate their deceptions. And perhaps they have some experience of getting away with other things. I'm not saying he is a serial killer or might be. I'm just saying I can't rule it out. But he's not very good at hiding himself. He made a lot of mistakes. But it seems to me that he has a history of some types of fraud and lying that he's been caught at. So I think he does have this kind of attitude that he's probably got some amount of charm. Um, people have, even if they've seen caught him in a lie, they've maybe forgiven it or dismissed it or minimized it. And people who have that experience start to believe in their own deceptions. They start thinking, oh, I'm pretty good at this. And uh, put, put, I'll just put more of that out there. And I a think too, when, so when, good, they, they convince yeah. themselves. Yeah. And I think when you're searching online for certain things um, and not really covering your tracks, although I guess putting it on your son's iPad is, is maybe covering your tracks. And we talked about that, but the young, the son is, I mean, the oldest son is six years old. I don't know if he knows. Well, but look, you know, searches. I could, I could say I have searches like that and I'm a writer. I write this stuff. Oh, Chris right? and I, you remember yeah, that one yeah. time? Exactly. Chris and I had to, together, we were Googling and I said, do we go incognito on this? We had to Google <laughs> how long it takes to strangle someone. <laughs> yeah. But you, thought, if well, you were a forensic pathologist, that's perfectly fine. Right. Um, mm -hmm. If you were a uh, someone who documents biology or forensic pathology, that's fine. So then he, he could easily say, well, I, I aspire to do that, or I'm thinking of a plot, as some killers have done. Um, oh, I'm writing, I'm writing fiction on this, and that's what I was looking up. So there's, there are a lot of ways around that. He And I, as I understand it, he had already thrown much of the evidence in a trash, thinking no one's going to find this. And mm -hmm. they did find at least some of it. Um, but can they make a case on that? That's in his mind, no. Because if he has this narcissistic immunity, he would think, that no matter what, I will get away with this. Mm -hmm. So if you were creating some sort of profile on a guy like a Brian Walsh, how, how would you go about doing it? Well, a profile is really on the crime scene, not on the guy. So it'd be, you'd look at the behavior at the scene uh, mm -hmm. or around the victim. So you start always with victimology. So you look mm -hmm. first at the missing person. And, you know, the story was that she she got in a car to the airport, but then her phone pings at home when she's supposedly already gone. So now we have, okay, so the victim wasn't where the closest person to her is supposedly, you know, is she supposed to be? Why is that? Did she stay home? If she did, why didn't he, you know, why didn't he report her missing? Mm -hmm. So you first look at the victim and the people closest to the victim. Yeah, That's where you start to build the behavior. And then you look at the, you know, if you think foul play happened, you look at the, the place where you think it happened. Um, so we have a collection of implements and we have blood, bloody um, clothing or, you know, whatever. We have things missing. We have things found. Her purse, expensive purse, her COVID card. Um, so, so now we know somebody close to her is the most likely person to have done this because that person was in her home, um, mm -hmm. somehow got, got a hold of these things, discarded them. 
So now you're going to be looking at the psychology of the person who behaved in that way. So that's how mm -hmm. it always starts the victimology. Right, right, right. And, and you mentioned narcissistic immunity. Now, this is the first time I've ever heard that term. Can you go a little bit in, in, into detail about that? Yeah, it's a cognitive distortion. It grows out of a narcissistic attitude, a person who already is self-centered and thinking only of their own needs. But it, it's a little bit more pronounced in terms of um, they think they're almost special, protected, mm -hmm. destined. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that even if you, you know, they make a mistake and you've figured them out, well, they're not going to get caught. But Or if mm -hmm. caught, they're not going to get convicted. Or if mm -hmm. convicted, they're not, you know, like Bundy. Oh, you can't touch me. I'm too right. special. I, mm -hmm. You know, you, you'll have to keep me alive because there's just no one like me. I'm so unique. Mm -hmm. and, and he, it's not reality. It's a distorted sense of reality that is all about this sense of their specialness. And it's almost an arrested development, like there's still a child who mm -hmm. feels protected. And they're still at that very young age where they're, they're really not aware of, um, you know, what's closing in on them because they think they're so special. Wow. You know, <laughs> I've actually dealt with a guy, I think, that reaches that description. You know, I had a guy that put him in jail for murdering a young woman. And I have more physical evidence in this case against him than most of the cases that I've worked in a, in a capital murder case. You know, a lot of physical evidence that tied directly back to him. And then when I, when I brought him in and was questioning him, he lawyered up or he lied about it. I can't remember exactly, but as I'm taking him outside, he's like, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to jail. You know, you won't convict me of this. You know, I'm too pretty to go to jail. These are some of the things that he's saying to me about, uh, during that case. So maybe he has this, this type of, yeah. Uh, I mean, John Wayne Gacy at his trial was saying, I'll see you, I'll see you later after I'll see you for dinner when this is over. Really? Wow. Uh, no, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of women who listen to this podcast. Obviously, the true crime genre, the major listeners are women. And I don't just think it's because we love hearing these awful stories. We know that women often listen to this because we're trying to learn from it. We want to know what, what should we do if we're ever a victim in a case or potentially in danger. Something like this, when I read the case of Brian Walsh and his background before even getting to the part where Anna goes missing. We have someone who has basically deceived his way into his father's will. We know that his friends all talk about him wanting to appear very affluent, whether they were or they weren't is in question. We know that Anna worked really hard and she made good money. But as far as how Brian got his money, if it was only through deceit purposes, we don't really know. But he would love to be showy and he would have these extravagant dinners so we know that about him. We know that he was a swindler when it came to the paintings. He he sold those. And he basically, he was under house arrest because of that. So those things alone for a woman, she may kind of separate herself from that, right? Well, he's misunderstood in his family and his father cut him out of the will and he, he was do that. And I'm not saying this is what happened with Anna. I'm just saying in general, sometimes when a man does have this kind of history and this habitual deceitful personality, women can kind of excuse that because maybe they're charmed out of it. What are some warning signs that a woman should really just pay attention to and see that this could get more dangerous than just deceiving people out of money? There's a lot of, lot of questions in that question. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> 
Um, he reminds me of the case of Mark and Lori Hacking. Mark represents a, a type of person who, with a very weak sense of self-esteem, creates his life out of a series of little lies. And the more he gets away with that, like, I graduated from college when he didn't. I, I have this source of income when he really doesn't. Um, I have these credentials when he really doesn't. But nobody, nobody tests them in part because why? They trust him. So he's managed to create this frame where people have certain expectations that he'll come through with whatever, what he says. And also being in love. You tend to put the most benign interpretation on anything that kind of doesn't feel right. So I think that's what happened with Mark and Lori, and, I, and she was pregnant. And so I think when the house of cards began to crumble, when he was confronted with some of the lies, he killed her. Hmm. It was reactive, like, okay, you got me, and I can't let this get out. You're dead. Hmm. So that's, that's what this situation reminds me of. It's not the only one either, but that's a, that's a good illustration of the way uh, the the deceptive person builds their life story, exploiting trust, exploiting expectation based on a, a facade of uh, trustworthiness. And, and then once somebody finally challenges, you said this and I just found out this isn't true, they'll react. They're cornered. And, and all of those deceptions are shattered. And they have to do something. And sometimes the person who confronts them is the one who ends up dead. Mm -hmm. So right. I, that's what I see. So your other question is how do women protect themselves? We're men, by the way, this is mm -hmm. not just a male right. thing. Um, how do people protect themselves? If they see a few of these things that just seem off, well, you said that, but this, they need to more, more objectively approach the situation and start to consider, I might be deceived. We don't like believing we fall for things. And the liar counts on that mm -hmm. because most of us don't want to admit we can be duped, especially by someone we love and we live with on a daily basis. We don't like to admit it because one, it's unsafe and two, it makes us feel stupid. And they know that. So they count on it and exploit it. So take the risk, be stupid, to challenge them on things that just aren't making sense, aren't lining up the inconsistencies. If there are enough of them, something's wrong with, with the way that person is presenting themselves. And don't ever just confront them alone. Mm. Not that they'll all be dangerous, but they all have the potential to do something. So confront them with another person or let another person know, here's what I plan to do. Um, because if you get into an explosive emotional situation, a person might react in a way that even they don't realize. They're, they're mm -hmm. not ready for it, but they do it. And I think we have a situation potentially here where uh, the plan wasn't in place. It was more of an aftermath of a cleanup situation. Um, but something happened there there must have been some kind of confrontation or i know something's wrong here and i want to know the truth whatever it was um it, it worked out badly for the victim mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm curious to know you may not be able to answer this 
I guess it would kind of depend on the individual, but are there any telltale signs that a person can look for before it gets to that point uh, where it could be dangerous for a person? Are there any signs that you can think of that you should look for? Yeah, there's something we call psychological leakage, and that that is um, their their attitude, their rigidity, uh, their narcissism will come out in certain comments. Like they might be watching a Lifetime movie with you or something and make some snide comment, um, or I could get away with that better than that that guy did. Or mm. you know, so they they begin to have these little little um, pieces of behavior that just feel off or feel mm-hmm. odd or even feel dangerous and so so the important thing is not to fall into a state where you're willing to minimize it because mm-hmm. you know for the sake of the relationship for mm-hmm. example or for the sake of a friendship or whatever be careful not to minimize because leakage matters we see it in a lot of the mass murders and school shooters they they make these comments. So wow. a person a person like this who who has this kind of con running in their life, and and when they're confronted, they will already have made either some behavioral mistake or some verbal indicator of how they might react or respond to mm-hmm. being challenged. That is extremely deep to hear because I have a, a few female friends that are my friend. Of course, you know, I'm a married man, but I have female friends that are friends with my wife and they're always asking me about certain things, uh, you know, that doesn't seem right about, especially about new guys that they're dating. And I noticed a, a reoccurring theme and it's always the minimization Be, because you think, you know, this person well enough that, okay, he's just saying that that's just him. And, and it could be something. And I'm not saying this to, to scare off anybody. I don't want to go and ruin a bunch of relationships because of it. I do believe that it's women in general that will usually be the ones that will minimize a lot. Men do it sometimes. I think there's a certain type of, there is a danger when a woman does it in these types of uh, situations. So well, I appreciate it. Well, and, and the inside. deeper you get into it, the more committed you get and even financially invested and then have children, the more you minimize because the terror of losing stuff Mm -hmm. uh, is always there as well. And losing your home, losing custody of your children, it it now becomes even more important to look at the behavior as benignly as possible. And that's when it's most dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's sad because we know Anna had written a letter to the judge on behalf of her husband about, thank you for letting him be home. And we don't know the state of that marriage, so this is only speculation, but she's somebody who's getting up every day and she's going to work and she's really driven and ambitious. I'm sure as a, a female in her shoes, it was frustrating to have a husband that wasn't doing things the legal way, um, going about it the same kind of way. But yes, they have three children now and mm-hmm. they've created a life together. So that's really hard. Some things you're just willing to overlook because in that moment, it's not life or death issue, but right. you just never know. Chris, you had mentioned something about your girlfriends and people in general. You get a gut feeling. You really do. Mm-hmm. So don't ignore that gut feeling. Talk to your friend about it. Don't keep it to yourself. Say, does this sound normal? I had a friend years ago and she was dating this guy, really liked him. He was a charmer, but she noticed that whenever they would go to other events with other people, networking events, whatever it may be, 
he would say things about himself that absolutely were not true, that he was in this certain kind of professional school. And she's like, no way. He's still an undergrad. This is mm-hmm. wild. And he would just say all of these lies when meeting other people. And she thought it was even crazier because she's standing next to him looking at him like, wait a minute, but I know this isn't true. You know, I know this isn't true. So when they would go home, she would just kind of say, well, why do you, why do you say those things? He's like, well, you know, you want people to respect you and you notice how they talk to you differently in a conversation. And so at first she thought, well, maybe that's it. He's a little insecure and that's okay. He's a little older. He's barely still getting his undergraduate degree. Maybe he just feels like he wants to feel like somebody in these conversations. Later, it just kept going until finally she suspected he was unfaithful. And she thought, if he's lying about all these other things, he absolutely is lying about this. So that mm-hmm. seems to be just what you're looking for. If, if the person is just a liar in general, mm-hmm. beware. Because I think absolutely, especially if it's the kind of lie that's building themselves up, because the possibility is most of their life has been based on deceptions. And that's the kind of person who is not going to take being cornered well, being called mm-hmm. out. They're not going to. There was a moment in her letter, and we had read it earlier, where Anna has, tells the judge Brian's behavior, it's something that his he was raised with. Basically, it's his family all thinks this way and it's not okay and he's learning and i thought oh man that's just that is classic right there right he's telling her i'm -hmm. blaming my family this is how he was raised i mean you're a grown man with a wife and children but you're acting like you don't know the difference between right and wrong the fact that you're now going to use your wife and manipulate her in that way and use all these excuses to not just just take accountability. No, this wonder. is this is a person who's not going to take accountability. Right. As I said, they're arrested development at a very juvenile age. They're not taking because they know, they don't have to take accountability that somebody else will do that. But you also see the dynamic here of a woman who's uh, protecting him, enabling him. So the t- the two things go together very well. But right. that faith, that makes the dangerous life. situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Standing by his side until, but until not just standing we'll by his side, buying it, buying into his excuses and conveying them as his spokesperson. That's even more profound in terms of the, the, what's going on in their relationship. I'd be really curious to see whether this is a guy who's going to say, "I'm going to take a plea because this just doesn't look good," or if his personality is going to stay true to this. I'm going all the way. I can convince people I'm innocent. Let's take it to trial. So that'll be interesting as the story develops to see what ends up happening with him. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ramsland. We really appreciate your time and giving us a little more insight on this kind of personality and some tips for our listeners. So thank you so much. And hopefully we can have you on again for some other Criminal Minds conversations. Enjoy the rest of the day. You too. Take care. Wow, Chris, I really appreciated talking to her. And I could pick her brain for so long because she's also a serial killer, psychoanalysis. Well, I, was hoping, I was hoping you didn't stop it right there because she's also a serial killer. No. Uh, yes, <laughs> no, she offers a lot of insight and she understands the profile of serial killer. So I'm sure there's going to be an interesting case at some point where we can have her on again and she can give more insight into that. But I just appreciated how she can give some 
insight as to warnings and red right. flags for people to look for when dealing with people as far as whether you're with them in an intimate way or even just friends with them and there it is family the giving episode of the crime and cookie juice podcast we want you to feel safeguarded in your dating relationships and your friendships with anyone we're thankful for the doctor to come on and give us a little bit more information and, and some insight into the mindsets of certain people and we want you to take heed so family Thanks again for listening to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast with your host, Detective Chris Anderson, and my partner in crime, Fatina Stolen. Thank you, guys. Guys, y'all have a great night, and tune in next week where we'll have another interesting episode of the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast where we talk more crime and drink more cookie juice. Okay. Good night, guys. Good night. Stay safe.